Mark goes on to begin to define Jesus' mission, of what his messianic mission is. It's not one to establish a physical kingdom necessarily. It's not to just defeat the, the enemies of Israel, that, that being Rome. It's to, to defeat the enemies of humanity, to defeat sin, death, and Satan and his works. And so we see that the mission that Jesus comes to bring is one of the sacrifice and love, and that's on the cross. So that's the two sections. Are you with me? Let's get some warmed up. Come on. Ready? You guys with me? Oh, we're starting here. Okay. You guys be quiet. You guys, are you with me? You guys. Over here? Okay. That's good. Back there? There we go. Okay. We're warmed up and I'm warmed up. Okay. So here's the message. What, what happened? The baby. Oh, no. Sophia. I'm sorry. Maybe when I have kids, I'll be a little more sensitive. Sorry about that. So here's, we got to know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, the primary message that Jesus taught was the kingdom of God is at hand. He talked about the kingdom of God more than prayer, more than love, more than the Old Testament, more than sex, more than anything else. He talks about the kingdom of God. And we, as a, as a community of faith, the garden, are trying to define the kingdom so that we can understand his primary message. Now, here's his message in a nutshell. The kingdom of God is the sovereign rule or reign of God on earth. You could say it's the way life is intended to be in the first place. The way, the way of life that God intended us to live. It's a, it's a life that's marked by healing, by shalom, by peace, by wholeness, by justice, by new hearts, by righteousness, by new spirits, by the Holy Spirit. All of that is under this concept called the kingdom of God. And Jesus says it's at hand. It's a reality to be experienced. It's not something that we talk about theologically. It's something that we enter into and can become a full participant in. That's the, the powerful message of the kingdom of God. That it's not just a, a theological concept. It's not just something that you see on ch at church or show up to. It's something that we become a participant in. That we are called to be agents of reconciliation, of hope, of joy, of peace, of justice, of righteousness, of the Holy Spirit on earth as it is in heaven. You with me? Good, because that's a mouthful. And... Um, by way of introduction. So that's what this whole series is about. And we've been going verse by verse. A couple more thoughts um, before we go on. Okay, so that's Mark. I want to talk to you about the, these narratives. I'm going to use the word narrative. Um, it's, it's, it, some of you can replace that with paradigm. You can replace it with worldview, your perspective. We all have a variety of narratives that we live by. Would you agree? Well, we all have stories that we're telling or stories that have been told to us that we, we interpret the world and the larger story around. So for example, um, we live our lives in a way uh, and we see our lives in a way uh, by, based on these stories. So for example, uh, we have family narratives. Early in life, we're taught by our families uh, what it means for us uh, to be valued. We ask the, qu we're answer the questions are answered, excuse me, why am I here? Who am I? Our families impart on us ethical systems of what's right and wrong. You guys with me on these narratives? That's a family narrative, for example. There are cultural narratives that we live in. Being in Southern California in the United States, we are going to interpret life in a way that is different than if we grew up in some Asian country. So here we might believe that actually if we work hard, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can accomplish things. Would you agree? 
that, that actually we're, we're, we're given this whole um, worldview or this narrative of consumerism, of narcissism, of pleasure, of, of rugged individualism. And we're, we're told stories about revolutionaries, about pioneers. Are you with me? Those are cultural narratives. And all of us have a variety of cultural narratives that we're telling. Um, there are, what else? There are religious narratives. Some of us have been taught messages from pulpits that have shaped the way we see God. Some of us have read books that shape the way we see our life and the way life is supposed to be in the afterlife. Um, all of these religious narratives kind of talk to us about what it means to be a Christian, what, what it means to believe in the resurrection or life after death or, or God himself. We have so many different narratives that we're, we're, we're living by. And I want you to start thinking right now as we talk through this message, what are the narratives that you have? What are the true narratives that you have? What are the false narratives? Let me give you some examples of some narratives. For example, maybe you're here and you don't believe that there's, there's anything after this life here and now. Maybe you don't believe in God or you don't believe that there's, there's anything, after, in, anything after you die. How does that narrative play out in your everyday life? Well, for example, if there's nothing after, if there's nothing good after death, then you probably seek pleasure. You probably seek to fulfill your life with, with everything that's joyful, with, with stuff, with, with things that just build you up. Would you agree? Maybe, maybe some of you, if you have that perspective, um, you, you're, you're self-focused and you are narcissistic because everything revolves around you. That's a common paradigm. The common paradigm of our generation is that there's nothing else after this life. And it shapes uh, a more cynical, uh, a lack of hope in society. Those are those narratives. I'll give you an example of one of the narratives I grew up with. For whatever reason, I grew up with this narrative. Maybe some of you can relate. That um, I'm valuable if I'm successful. Right? From an early age, I knew that I was valued based on the affirmations of the things that I did well. So when I'm a kid, what do I do at school? I perform very well. I get straight A's. This is what happened. In my, I'm just telling you my story. The, 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 more, you know, the more affirmation I can get about success, the more valuable I feel in life. So uh, my paradigm in life is in order for me to have value, I have to do something good. So I graduate my, my senior year from high school and I'm the president of, of drama. I'm the president of Renaissance for ASB. I'm the president of, of National Honor Society. This is all true. I was on the captain of the dance team, the hip-hop dance team. That is true as well. Hip-hop, not jazz hands, okay? Um, I was the captain of the comedy sports team and on and on and on and on and on. Because something deep down inside told me that to be valued or to be important, to be loved, I have to do something. I have to earn it. Now, how did that play into my relationship with God? Think about it. What do I have to do? For, I, it's not that I just have to show up on Sunday. I have to do a lot of stuff on Sunday. I have to read my Bible, not just a little bit. I've got to read the Bible in 90 days. I've got to fast five days a week. I've got to pray for hours on the end. I've got to see miracles happen on a regular basis and bring thousands of people to faith. That's how I know God loves me. That's the narrative I, I believed in. Maybe I'm the only one here, but that's a false narrative that I'm constantly having to repent of. Because that's not a true narrative of God, is it? Some of us have this view of God, this false narrative that he's angry. And that no matter what you do, he'll never enjoy you as you are. He'll never love you as you are. Some of you have the, the, the false narrative that God is, is this, this um, you have to earn your way to him. You have to do all these works to receive, I don't know, heaven or resurrection or life. 
But I want you to think as, as a way of introduction before we jump into scripture, what are the narratives that you tell? If someone were to zero in on your life, what story would it be telling? How do you interpret life right now on earth based on the way you live? And how does that reflect the God that you're worshiping? Because if, if someone looked in my life when I was um, worshiping a God that's all about works and all about valuing those that are successful, how many of you would want to worship the same God? That's not the God of the Bible. Are you with me? Okay. By way, way of introduction, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. So here we are in Mark. Oh, one more thing. Gosh, lots of intro today. Um, we are in the middle of the temple, okay? So Mark chapters 1 through 10 is about three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Mark chapters 11 through 16 is seven days of Jesus' ministry. A couple days ago, Jesus comes to the temple. Now here's a picture of the temple. The temple in, uh, in Israel is the center of the capital city, Jerusalem, which to the paradigm, to the narrative of the Jewish community, this is the center of the world. This was built by King David, I'm sorry, planned by King David, built by his son, King Solomon. And this is the place where heaven met earth. This is also the place that God's very presence dwelt. This is where people could come and, and actually meet God. The temple was the capital of the religious system. It was like the Vatican, but it was also the capital for politics, for justice and the ju judicial system, as, as well as the governing rule for them. So it was like the White House, the Vatican, the Supreme Court, um, and Wall Street all rolled up into one right here. And Jesus, a 33-year-old rabbi from a no-name place called Nazareth, a backwater part of Barstow, basically, comes. Forgive me if you're from Barstow. I know you're here. Um, but you get the point if you live there. And, um, and he comes in, and he starts throwing tables. He starts messing everything up. He starts ordering people around. He comes with an authority that they question. And so we're right after that scene. Jesus just flips out in this temple. And he says, this needs to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And he just starts organizing and ordering the temple and the people around. And so he's all of a sudden being questioned by the authorities, by the rulers of the, of the temple. And they want to know who he is, what, what gives him the right to say these things. And so we pick up in that story where Jesus is being confronted by the religious, uh, religious leaders. And here we go, verse 13. Um, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay him or shouldn't we? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were all amazed. So Jesus is confronted by two characters, the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians, it's important that we get this. This couple, these are two different religious sects. The Herodians were part of the court of Herod. They would have received their income from paying taxes. They would have got income from people that paid taxes. 
They were part of the court of Herod, which meant that Herod, when he, when he applied the tax that went to Rome, he would collect a portion for himself. And these are religious leaders that are part of his specific court. They, were just, uh, they, they weren't separate or anything like that. They supported the tax. Now the Pharisees, we know about the Pharisees. These guys are the religious elite. They're leaders. They considered, um, they're considered separatists. So they separated themselves from anything that was unholy, anyone that was unholy or unclean. And their view of taxes is that you cannot, not only not touch a coin, a denarius, but you can't pay taxes to Caesar because of what it represented. Now remember that these religious leaders, they added like 1,200 laws on top of the 613 laws of Moses. They're all about rules and regulations. And these two different groups of people come together and they have a mutual enemy, Jesus. And they, they want to know whether they should pay taxes because the question itself is, is absolutely, um, it, it's going to lead to Jesus' demise if he chooses. And I'll get to that in a second. But let me talk about taxes. Here's a coin. So taxes were implemented around 6 AD um, by Caesar Augustus. But this time, during Jesus' life, you had this silver coin. This is a denarius. It's worth about 15 cents. And um, it was collected at the temple in Jerusalem. And it went from the, the temple to Herod's court where he would then send whatever the portion was that he was required to receive from Israel to Rome, okay? It was seen as oppressive. Some people estimate that uh, Herod added like 40% more than what was necessary and they were being taxed by 80% of their income was taxed. I mean, they, they, had, they lived off of 20%. This is the son of Caesar Augustus. On it, it says Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin, it said Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. Jewish people believed that to pay taxes was to worship Caesar. To pay taxes, to touch a tax, was to touch a graven image to a false god. The question, though, isn't about paying taxes. It's about trapping Jesus in his words, right? And so what we have here is that these guys are trying to discredit Jesus's um, authority in the temple. So here's the question. Do we, do, we give Caesar, do we pay taxes to Caesar or don't we? If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's seen as a traitor by the crowd. If he says yes, he loses it. He's seen as a traitor. These guys are trying to fit him in. Is, is he a traitor? Or if he says, don't pay taxes, he's a revolutionary. And the Roman imperial guard will come down on him and destroy him. So either way, he answers it. The religious leaders have him in a trap. Do you fit this particular system or this system? Are you right or are you left? Are you red or blue? Because this ideologically does not fit with this ideologically. And, and that's the only way we can see this system working out. Where do you fit Jesus in this political system? That's what's going on. And this is Jesus' response. Whose image is on the coin? Whose image is on the coin? The Greek word for image is the counterpart for the Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. When God says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, he could have used a different word, but he doesn't. He does this on purpose. He's so smart. <laughs> if you don't think Jesus is smart, you're missing the point. He's a superior teacher than anyone. Um, so, he says, whose image? Now, any Jew listening would have caught exactly what Jesus just did. He flipped it upside down. It's no longer a question of loyalty to Caesar or not. It's now a question of loyalty to God. 
So it's like Jesus saying, okay, give, to, give the, these cheap medals to Caesar and render to God what's, what's, what's deserving of him. Let me say that again. <laughs> That's not what he says, actually. Let me give you a better way of saying it. I have, I've written it so much better. Um, he says, okay, give Caesar back these worthless pieces of metal, and he, he, he claims, but know that we are to render God all things since God alone is divide and all belongs to God. The question now is about stewardship. The question now is about, not about whether or not Jesus fits into the system, but that our allegiance to God supersedes the system we create. Do you see the difference? Where we are so anxious to define Jesus over here, over here, Jesus says, well, what about this way? He offers a kingdom perspective, a third alternative. And it seems like he does this every time he's, he's questioned, doesn't it? You know, the world says this, but I say this. So Jesus here challenges the, the narrative that says, well, there's only two ways that you can really fit and offers another way. How many of us honestly try to fit Jesus into the systems we've created in life rather than allow him to redefine the system or the purpose of the system in the first place? Are you with me on that? Great. Um, so our, the main point is our allegiance in any political environment and any narrative is first to God. Remember that. It's a good year to talk about that stuff, okay? I'm not going to get into it, though. Here we go. Next, next part. So that was one, one thing. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, it's like, it's like a ping-pong match. We got, we got the Pharisees and the Herodians, and it's the Sadducees, then it's the scribes, and it's literally back and forth, and Jesus just kind of boom, 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 shoots them down all at once. So here's, here's the Sadducees. It says this in verse 18. Um, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married, with the, uh, married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Or whose wife will she belong to? Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, Are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. It's days like these I wish Bill were here to teach. <laughs> so here's what I want to do. I want to talk, talk about what's going on, who are the characters in the story, talk about the text and what it means, and I have some biblical observation. I want to talk, because it's theologically dense. This is a... Many people have read this scripture and have assumed a lot out of it. They've speculated on the implications. All I want to do today is talk about what Jesus actually says in the Greek. So it's called biblical theology. Are you for it? Are you with me? Let's do this. Here we go. So the question, first of all, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are another religious sect. This group, are, they are the wealthy, rich, land-owning group 
uh, religious group that, that has a lot of uh, dominion or rule over the temple. They get their income from the temple, sacrifices and offerings. They're wealthy beyond belief. And they have a paradigm, a narrative that says that there is no afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in anything supernatural. All we have in life is what we have here and now. That is their narrative that they see life through. And so they bring this question to Jesus. And the question is really, it's a, there's a, a, a famous Latin word for it, but it's a rabbinic tale. And here's kind of the thought process behind it. So they bring this, this kind of story of seven brothers and marrying the wife. And this is the, the logic behind it. If the resurrection doesn't make sense with the law that is presented and given, therefore, the resurrection must not be true because the law supersedes everything else. If the resurrection, resurrection doesn't make sense with the law, then the law over, overrules and resurrection doesn't make sense. It's just a philosophical argument that they're bringing to him. Are you with me? Okay, I lost about all of you, so that's great. I'm going to keep going. The question comes from the, something called a leveret marriage or patriarchal marriage. It comes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And it's a law given by Moses. And it says that in order to secure one's wealth, one's property, one's land, one's possessions, one's family name, one's family line, you have to have a legitimate male son. Otherwise, the widow would lose everything. So written into law is something to protect the widow from losing everything. So it's written as something good. It's, it's used as an economic stability to protect the, the suffering widow. And that's, that's this, that it's a man's responsibility to marry his widow's wife to produce a legitimate male offspring. This was written into the law as a way to protect um, the, the, the widow. Once he produced a legitimate male offspring, he was no longer bound to her in marriage or to treat her as a wife. It was just a law written in the Old Testament to protect her. This is what's called patriarchal marriage or leveret marriage. And here's the thing. The only people concerned with this law, thousand years later after the, the law was written, so the only people in the first century that were concerned about this law were the Sadducees. They're asking questions that are irre irrelevant for everyone else. Because what they see is how are we going to secure our wealth? How are we going to make sure that we stabilize our comfort and our possessions and all of that? The question is not about a tr uh, seeking truth, but about the resurrection. The question is about the validity of the law over the afterlife. Are you with me on that? So, it's not about the resurrection. It's about this practice called the leveret marriage. Um, and Jesus responds to them. And here's the biblical observations I want to bring. Jesus responds to them and says, you guys miss it completely. You miss it in theory. You miss it in practice. He's really harsh to the religious leaders because they are given the words of life, the truth, and they're totally missing the point. They blow it. And he says to them, look, the resurrection is not a static doctrine, but it's the dynamic living hope for the transformation of the world. Go to verse 25. I want to point this out because this is what, what's happening in the text. This is what Jesus says, okay? He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Okay. There are two different Greek words here that deal with marriage, and they're gender specific. 
men in a patriarchal society would marry. Women in a patriarchal society didn't have the same rights and they were, would be given in marriage. This is specific to the Le, uh, Leverite marriage or the patriarchal marriage. It's a specific phrase that has to do with what happens in this particular marriage. Do you catch this, okay? And what he says is that when, when the age to come happens, when the resurrection happens, when the dead rise, there will be no new marriages initiated. That's what he's saying. Okay, no new marriages are initiated when, when, the age to, uh, when the age to come happens. And he says, we will be like angels. Not that we will have sexless identities. This is a common the theology that we won't have gender uh, specificity. There'll be no distinction. That's false. He's challenging a paradigm that the Sadducees have and says, it's not that we'll have a sexless identity, but rather we will live forever like the angels. Sadducees don't believe in angels. He's correcting their false doctrine, their false narrative. In, re in this response, um, uh, Jesus says that there will be no need for this particular marriage law because it was designed to protect the widow from the effects of death. There's not going to be death in the age to come. That's what Jesus says in the text, okay? He does away with a, a false doctrine and he affirms a different doctrine that when the resurrection happens, our life will be completely transformed by God's living presence. You with me? Now here's Darren speaking, not from the biblical theology. This is me interpreting what I understand. Jesus says that there will be no new marriages initiated. He doesn't say that, that the marriage relationships that we have will disappear when the age to come happens. He doesn't say that the relationships that you and I build on earth here and now will disappear. He doesn't say that. You can't find that in the text. He's correcting the, Sadducee, the Sadducees' false doctrine. I believe that when Jesus talks about treasuring the things of heaven, not the things of earth, he's talking about meaningful relationships. Uh, if you read the resurrection accounts, you see that the disciples have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. He dies, he raises from the dead. It's not everything's changed. It's that he, they continue in a relationship. Peter denies uh, Jesus and then he's, he's um, sorry, I'm, I'm like spitting all over you. I apologize. <laughs> I'll stay back. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus raises from the dead. Je uh, uh, Jesus reasserts him, reaffirms him, affirms him three times and commissions him. There's a continuation of the stuff of eternity and the stuff of eternity happens right now. That's what Jesus is teaching with the kingdom of God. Are you with me? So let's not get caught up in speculative, speculative theology, which is trying to make definitions about whether or not we're going to be married or not married or not know our spouses or all that stuff. I have to believe that we will have relationships with people that we have relationships here. You're with me. That's what the text is saying. Now, Jesus responds appropriately and says, look, it's not just about the dead rising. It's about your, the when the resurrection happens, life will be completely transformed. It's far more dynamic than that. And he challenges them. He calls them idiots. And he, just, he says, remember that passage in Scripture where, you know, where God talks to Moses. And it's, just, it's so clear that he's calling out these teachers in their false doctrine and practice. Here's why. This is the, kind of the point. The way that the Sadducees interpreted life in Scripture was through a lens that was distorted and motivated by their personal desires. Let me say this again. The way they interpreted life in Scripture was through a lens that was distorted and motivated 
by their, de- by their personal desires and their hope for securing control, comfort, and wealth. They looked at the text through the lens, through their own personal narrative that had to do with them controlling wealth, being rich, having lots of land, and them not seeing past that in the resurrection. In other words, you could say it this way. They use scripture to justify, affirm, validate, and accommodate their lifestyle. I'm going to say this one more time. They use scripture to justify, affirm, accommodate, and validate their lifestyle. Can we relate? How many of us use scripture or don't use a particular scripture in a way that validates our our narratives that are false? Let's just play around with a couple. You know, one that's, that's dominant in American culture is this consumer-oriented culture. God obviously wants to bless you. Our definition of blessing is completely different. We think that that has to do with more houses, more stuff, bigger cars, better vacations. We literally build empires in small kingdoms that are going to be vaporized. They're going to evaporate. They're things that will be dust There'll be moths eating away and thieves will come in and steal. We are called to treasure things that will last for eternity. But how many of us are actually not comparing things of eternity, but comparing things like with the Joneses? We put our dreams as something that we worship and idolize. When I get here, when I save this amount of money, when my bank account reaches here, and Jesus says to give to those who ask. He says to store up things uh, in heaven. He talks about um, uh, living Uh, as the resurrection example I mean there's so many elements with money he says don't worry about your life yet all I see around me are friends and I'll be I'll be one of them as well that just worry tremendously about retirement or about what clothes I'm gonna wear about the consumer-oriented culture Apple's coming out with a new product in March I know it's coming it's built into my narrative and they've been off on their cycle dates I'm just saying now my idol kill it it's not my idol I don't struggle <laughs> shoot those who know me crap um, excuse me but okay so God wants to let's, let's take that paradigm and apply it to scripture Jesus was in the center of God's will and died the apostles center of God's will some of them were, were stoned to death crucified upside down burned on a stake those are the closest people to Jesus and does that look like a blessed life how do we define blessing how do we do, that's called the prosperity gospel by the way god wants to give you a cadillac <laughs> he doesn't maybe he does um oh i love this one sexuality let's go there when i was a youth pastor i would preach you know not it, it says in ephesians not even a hint of sexual immorality what's the first question well, what does a hint mean and then it goes well how far is too far and so you make these decisions about your sexuality that have to do with freedom, life, and marriage. It has to do with, with power and the gift of what sex represents. But we, we, con- we condition it to these paradigms that say, well, um, going this far isn't a hint of sexual immorality. I don't want to get too graphic. But we, we get the point. 
maybe we're not in a relationship and we go, yes, we're doing some purity. We're right on. I'm doing good. But then as soon as we get into a relationship, we start questioning, blurring the lines of what hint actually means to where all of a sudden our paradigm of pleasure is overruling Scripture's authority. Are you with me? You go to finances, you go to sexuality, you go with dreams, you go with lifestyle choices, you go with everything. And all of a sudden, we talk about politics. We start, when people start saying Jesus is in this party and not in that party, we have to say, well, what about this text? He just kind of transcends both parties, doesn't he? We try to fit Jesus in or we try to attach him to our life, validate it as a stamp like it's some type of accessory. I mean, we, we live, I mean, here's a question. If somebody followed you in your everyday, ordinary life, seven days a week, would they see a follower of Christ who forgives his enemies, who prays for those who persecute him, who loves the way Jesus loves? If you're a husband who loves, lays down his life for his bride, or does he see, does he see someone that shows up to church on Sunday, sings songs for about an hour and a half, and lives like everyone else? I can keep going because this is all about me, basically. These are all the ways I try to accommodate Jesus in my life. A gossip. I love this one for some of the ladies and guys. Um, it's, it starts like this. I don't want to gossip or anything, but I need to get some advice, right? I mean, come on. Doesn't matter. I think so many of us try to fit Jesus into our narratives rather than allowing him to redefine our narratives. Jesus comes in and says, the way of life, the way you're supposed to live, that God intended you to live with beauty, with beauty bursting out of the seams, with health, life, um, resurrection life here and now, with new hearts, all of that is at your fingertips. You can live like that now here on earth in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, in the midst of, of doubt and fear and all that stuff. This reality is at your fingertips. Do you live in that reality or do you show up to church and read your Bible once in a while because you got that Oswald Chambers devotion? Or do you dig into the Word and allow Jesus to, to define your narrative? I mean, he, he, he comes in and redefines so many narratives. I was talking to my friend Jeffrey over here, talking about the prodigal son. I mean, think about this. If you think God's angry, what do you do with the narrative of the prodigal? If you think he's an angry judge, Jesus tells a story about, uh, about God's character, and this is what happens in a nutshell. A guy asks for his inheritance, takes it, to, takes it early, takes all of it early, basically saying to his dad, look, I want you dead, takes it, squanders it, hangs out with the low lives, comes back and says, I'm going to be a slave for my dad and pay it back. I have no worth in his eyes because I wished him dead. And he starts walking home. As he's walking home, his father sees him from a distance, runs to him, which you would never do in the first century, before the son can even apologize or give us some lame excuse or say that he wants to be a slave. His dad puts his arms around him, puts a cloak around him, puts a, fing, a, 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 a ring on his finger, declaring that this is his son, kills the fatted calf and throws a party. How do you do that when he's an angry God? Do you have that narrative? If you don't, you're worshiping a false idol. And that's whatever God 
that doesn't fit that stereotype. Are you with me? So what do we do with this? Well, let me tell you a couple of things. Jesus was the Messiah and didn't fit the expectations that were placed upon him. He didn't fit in the system. He redefined resurrection life. He didn't come and establish an earthly kingdom. He established a, a triumphant kingdom that involved something far greater. The enemy wasn't just Rome. It was Satan. It was sin. It was death. And because he didn't meet their expectations, they killed him. Because Jesus didn't fit into their narratives, they killed him. If you were there 2,000 years ago, I guarantee you would have been like me, nailing him to the cross. Because that means my dream, that means my security, that means my wealth, that means my, my retirement, that means life, that means all of those things. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You can have all that, but let's make it right. I think what we can just do is just pray right now. Um, let me just open this up. I just want to end there and leave you with the question. How many of us are allowing Jesus to come in and change our narratives, to not be an accessory, but to transform everything. The word for repentance is metanoia in Greek. It means to change one's mind. Some of us just need to repent this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus, we come uh, humbly before you, recognizing that, yes, we too probably would have killed you. We just confess that we, we live stories that are way too small for what you invite us into. Stories of fear and insecurity and doubt, of selfish ambition and dreams. And God, you invite us into so much more. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd minister to us this morning. That we would be people that would respond to your word. That we would allow the word to take root not try to attach it to something that we're already doing, but try to allow it to redefine our whole story. Lord, would you move in us and minister to us? And we pray all this in your name. Amen. We're going to worship, and uh, I'll just let, let's just sit for a little bit. Maybe sit with the, the word. I want to challenge you. I know it's crowded, but here's what I think is a proper response today. Maybe not for everyone, but... We have two crosses around the room. There's cracker and juice in the corners over there. However uncomfortable it may feel like to get out of these seats and walk and kneel, I think some of us, we just need to get up. Grab the cracker. It represents Christ's body broken for us. Dip it in the juice, which represents the new covenant, this new way of life poured out for us. Forgiveness, this new life. And simply repent. Confess where you've messed up. He's already forgiven you. But just recognize it and come to a God who loves you as you are, not as you should be. This isn't about doing more works. This isn't about working your way to God. This is about just coming clean, saying, God, I want, if you want, I want your life to, to become my new narrative.